Hello, thank you so much for joining the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers and I am your host today. Today we're gonna be having Dr. Jeffrey James on the podcast and he is an absolutely brilliant chiropractor who is my personal chiropractor and I wanted to have him on the show because you know I've been to a lot of chiropractors over the years. I've been going to chiropractors since I was in my teen years and I have never had anyone uh, like him as far as his thoroughness of his evaluation, the methods he used to treat me and the results that I got uh, with seeing him and with over a few month period. And I wanted to have him on because he is a chiropractic neurologist. And so, you know, has a lot of training in pain and how our brain interprets pain. And I thought he'd give you some great tips on how to manage your pain and deal with your pain. On the show today, you're going to be learning about some little known causes of pain and perhaps why your pain hasn't been addressed successfully. I know a lot of you guys out there are dealing with pain and go to physical therapists and chiropractors and doctors and orthopedic surgeons and do all these things much like I did when I was in pain and kind of desperate to get out of pain and restore my functioning, get back to my life and exercising and whatnot. And so I've been there. So I want to just help you guys on your journey to relieve your pain. And I think I have a lot of very effective tools that I found on my desperate search. (laughs) So we talk about that today on the podcast and a lot of different uh, cutting edge techniques that Dr. Jeffrey James uses with his patients. We talk about upright MRIs and we talk about uh, a lot of things that you can be doing, a lot of alternative treatments that you can do to address your pain. But before we get into that, please keep in mind that this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in anything that we suggest today on the show. Our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey James, is a board-certified chiropractic neurologist. He graduated from Los Angeles Chiropractic College, earning a Doctor of Chiropractic and a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology. He's a board-eligible as a fellow in neurochemistry and nutrition. He's also board-eligible as a fellow in vestibular rehabilitation, as well as traumatic brain injuries. He completed a postgraduate program of functional neurological and orthopedic rehabilitation in 2015 and has appeared on numerous radio and TV programs uh, such as Geraldo, Dateline, KLOS, KLSX, and KFI and has appeared as the medical expert for the NBC investigative journalist David Cruz. Dr. James fills a unique and significant role in treating back, neck, spine, brain, and nervous system disorders using safe and effective methods, producing lasting long-term health benefits, many times having great success with patients for whom all other treatment methods have failed. I can attest to this. He has inspired thousands with his knowledge, warmth, and personal touch, and his passion for teaching others how to restore their health and regain their vitality. 
In addition to his non-surgical back and neck pain treatment protocols, he has helped those who have fallen between the cracks of traditional allopathic and alternative treatments by caring for patients with type 2 diabetes, Hashimoto's, and peripheral neuropathy, often helping those patients reverse their disease process, reduce or eliminate, uh, eliminate many medications, and decrease pain while increasing energy levels. You can learn more about Dr. Jeffrey James at Integrate integratedphysicians.com. Dr. James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here with you. Yeah, why don't you tell that? So you're my chiropractor, and I, I, I think you are so brilliant, and I've had a lot of chiropractors. I've been going to see chiropractors since I was a teenager, and you're very, very different in how you work with people. You're a neurological chiropractor, is that correct? Yeah, the term is really chiropractic neurologist, okay, but right. neurological chiropractor works too. <laughs> yeah, and so so tell us about that. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do and your background and whatnot. Great, sure. So, you know, just like um, the medical profession has subsets, like you can go through your general training and then you can become an orthopedist or a neurologist or a pediatrician. It's the same thing in chiropractic. So we have our subsets and our specialties in our profession. Most people don't know about chiropractic neurologists because there's less than a thousand of us worldwide. And probably only about, I don't know, probably about 700 of us to 500 of us who are actually continuing with our continuing education, keeping that board certification alive. So we're sort of a rare breed. Um, and the difference between how we approach things and how traditional chiropractors will or even medical doctors will is simply that um, as we're dealing with you, what we're looking at is how is your nervous system communicating with itself? And so we look at those sort of those breakdowns in communication. How can we improve the function of that communication? So the difference between us and a medical neurologist would be medical neurologists are really great at diagnosing a disease or diagnosing a problem. And then the armamentarium they have is simply to give you drugs or surgery. In the world of functional neurology, the gray area is what matters to us, right? So we could diagnose you with a tumor. Well, then that's out of our hands. But most of the problems that we see that humans are suffering from aren't tumors, aren't cancers. They're actually functional disorders. Um, just like I know you're familiar with, you know, just autoimmune disorders, et cetera, which, or people who have subsets of autoimmune disorders before they have autoimmunity, they have sensitivities to things that's not on the radar really of allopathy of traditional medicine. So the world that I live in is looking at, not just if I'm looking at somebody's eyes, do they move from side to side, but how smooth and coordinated is that movement as it relates to the spine. So my training allows me to basically evaluate your nervous system probably more effectively than somebody who doesn't have my training and determine exactly where the breakdown in your nervous system is. So do you have a problem with a nerve that's in your toe? Is it in your ankle? Is it behind your knee? Is it in your hip? Is it in your back? Is it in your neck? Or is it your brain perceiving the information inaccurately? Yeah, and so I came to you when I was having lower back pain. I'd been to a couple other chiropractors and I just really hadn't resolved my issues. And mm -hmm. I had a bulging disc in my S1, so in my lower back, the very lowest vertebra. And, um, and you did a number of things with me that I had never uh, encountered before, never experienced before. And uh, just, just the way that you do adjustments and whatnot are very, very different. And, uh, and I, uh, over time, was able to relieve my back pain. And I, I did a number of things, massage and other things um, th that were very helpful to me. And I did some energy medicine. And over the course of a few months, I was able to finally get relief from my back pain. And but it was so important to do that physical work. Um, Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about pain. So why can treating pain be so elusive? Great question. So 
you know, there's there's pain that occurs as a consequence, let's say, of trauma or tissue breaking down or you injure yourself. But there's also neurological pain. So we don't have receptors in our body that transmit pain. Pain is lives up here. So we have special receptors, nerve receptors, that transmit information related to pressure, that transmit information related to uh, temperature, that have transmit information related to light touch, to vibration, all of these things. So what we experience is something that we, in our world, we call nociception. But the interpretation of that is what is pain. So many people will have an injury, let's say, and they can have a genetic susceptibility to sensitizing to that pain. What I mean by that is you have a trauma and now your nervous system and your brain becomes so fired up and so plastic, if you will, so efficient at transmitting that information related to the suffering and the pain that you experience that even if you take away the actual insult or the tissue injury, the person's still experiencing pain. Is that why it's so important to uh, treat these things uh, for pain as soon as you have an injury rather than a few years down the road because then you get that permanent loop? Uh, that plasticity in your brain, that there's a permanent uh, connection there that's transmitting pain? Yeah, that can be. But there are people who have sort of drawn drawn the unlucky genetic straw where they can sensitize immediately. They can literally have a trauma and they are just immediately sensitized and their system gets very efficient. So for your listeners, you know, we both use big words, plasticity. That may, mean not, may not mean a lot for them. What it really means is that when you fire a nerve pathway over and over and over again, or let's say you fire a nerve pathway once, it may release five neurotransmitters. But as you continue to push that pathway, maybe it starts to release 10 or 15 for every time that that pathway gets hit. And then eventually, it gets so efficient that you create another bud that starts to release more neurotransmitters, more and more neurotransmitters. So essentially what you're seeing is, and this is what we saw actually and was evaluated first with pain syndromes, where the system, the pain nerve fibers became so efficient that you could take away the source, but these people were already wound up. Their brains were winding up. So think of it this way, like somebody who has phantom limb pain, where somebody has their arm amputated, but their arm still hurts them in their brain. That's, a, that's, the, that's the essence of a central wind-up phenomenon. But it can happen to any of us, and it's not fun when it does. So a lot of times also, you know, why it's so elusive is we tend to look at a structure and think the structure is causing the pain. Like I can see it on an MRI. So I can see that you have a disc bulge on an MRI, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's causing the pain or that the disc pushing on the nerve root is causing the pain, it could be the disc itself. So until you evaluate somebody, until you look at them, until you get a really complete picture of them, you, you don't know, uh, you know, people can have sub, sub sort of clinical inflammatory processes going on. I know you deal with that in your practice, people are inflamed all over the place. That's gonna impact your pain level for some people. If people have a, a brainstem that's wonky, so this is starting to get a little, probably a little heavy and deep right away, but. There's an area in our brain, in our brainstem, called the locus ceruleus, and it produces um, epinephrine and norepinephrine. And centrally, meaning in the spinal cord, it actually inhibits pain. Outside of the spinal cord, when you start to secrete epinephrine and cortisol, it actually causes an increase in sensitivity to pain. So drinking coffee can sensitize you to pain. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's drinking four or five cups of coffee a day, that may be hard, maybe one of the reasons why it's difficult to get their pain level down. But if they've had like a, let's say they've had a, a trauma when they were a kid and they whack their brainstem a little bit, don't even know it. Now they're not producing that epinephrine that would normally suppress pain at the spinal cord level or serotonin at the spinal cord level. So unless you understand these mechanisms, it can get really tricky. And quite frankly, it's tricky even when you know the mechanisms to get somebody to follow through and allow you to work with them long enough to actually get that under control. Yeah. And so, uh, so how long does it take 
to get someone's pain under control. I know that everyone's a little bit different, um, but like when you're working with them, what does that timeline look like? Because I know a lot of people are very quick fix. They want to feel better immediately. And if they don't, they get that shiny object syndrome and then look for Indeed. that next practitioner. And I deal with that myself in my practice. A lot of people don't want to spend two years detoxing, <laughs> but like right. for you and, and probably you don't either. But so for how long does it take usually for people to get relief? You know, I'm an impatient practitioner, so I like to get results fairly quickly. That said, people who have chronic pain and have had it for a long time and have a poor diet and haven't worked out or haven't exercised and are deconditioned, if they're coming in with like back pain, sometimes it can take months. Normally, we're going to see people reduce their pain probably fairly significantly over the course of two to three months. I like to see... Depend, again, depending upon what I'm working with, you know, 25, 30% reduction in pain. People who have like, their pain is an eight to a 10, pain shooting down their leg, let's say, or into their arm. In four weeks, I like to see at least a 30% reduction to know that I'm on the right path. Otherwise, I have to change tactics. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a little hard to predict, you know, it's so individual and people's, and our perception of pain, as I said, it lives up here, right? So this, the suffering component of pain is something that's both learned, but it's also something that's genetic. So... You know, I tell the story of like, let's say two kids, you know, they're five years old, they're running down their gravel driveway and they fall down, right? And one kid like is pulling gravel out of his knee and laughing at it. The next kid is like running to mommy saying, this is killing me. What is that? There's a different perception of what occurred for those people and they're going to grow up with a different perception of pain. So I might do the exact same thing for the exact same diagnosis and one person's pain is relieved in two visits and the next person takes four weeks. Yeah. I'm like, I, I came into you, I had an injury on my shoulder. I had this weightlifting injury when I was 25. I literally just lifted a weight up like this. <laughs> it was just the most ridiculous injury that you could get. And, but I've, it's plagued me for 20 years almost. And I'd been to numerous physical therapists, chiropractors, and it never really got relief. And you did one move, uh, and it was gone. And um, it's kind of you funny. It, it, this is like six months ago. You did one move and it's total functioning and my pain has improved. I need to come and do again to get another adjustment because it's been bugging me just a tiny little bit because, uh, you know, you have to keep up with these things. But I was really impressed that with just the different ways that you adjust people. And a lot of times you go to a chiropractor, they only adjust your back. But you're doing all <laughs> kinds. Of, you're doing the arms and the elbows and the toes and all kinds of things. So, part the, so the reason for that for me is, is that I'm adjusting you for where I see your brain not functioning well, as opposed to just looking at it as, as a structural thing, like, oh, your back, and I feel your back, oh, your pelvis is out. I tend to look at you and look at your eyes, and it gives me a window into, is the left side of your brain not functioning as well as the right side, or vice versa, or is there an aspect of your brain, your cerebellum not working right, and how do I want to fire that up? So I can use adjustments. They're very powerful adjustments. Look, all therapies in the world are receptor-based. They stimulate, so whether it's, it's nutrition or it's drugs or it's massage or it's acupuncture or it's chiropractic, at the end of the day, we're stimulating receptors. And those receptors fire up eventually into your brain. So if we can sort of narrow down what area of the brain we want to work with and fire up, we can be a little bit more effective with our therapies. So for me, when I'm adjusting somebody, I'm usually looking at, well, what's bothering you, of course, because that'll tell me potentially where there's structural abnormalities. But oftentimes, it's the brain that's driving the structural abnormality. So if I can adjust you to release something in your shoulder, but it also has an impact on your brain in the way that I want, I'll probably have a more effective outcome. Yeah. Or as my neurology instructor likes to say, is you just had a temporary lapse in clinical incompetence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep us all humble. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was really impressed when I came into your office and just the evaluation that you did. 
I've never really had that before with any chiropractor that I've been to over 20, 25 years. And you really do this very thorough uh, examination on many different levels. I mean, it took like an hour. Uh, and um, most guys, they come in, they just start adjusting you. Uh, there really isn't that much of a health history or evaluation involved. So again, that's just a training thing for us, right? So uh, again, we're looking at what part of your system is breaking down. Most of the people who come to me have been to a half a dozen other really competent doctors. And the story that I hear over and over again is they don't really get examined. So it's not just other chiropractors. I'm probably examining more thoroughly than most medical doctors. You know, I, I, um, I was diagnosed with Lyme a few months ago and I went to a, a very well-known Lyme doctor in Los Angeles. Her examination was listen to my heart for two or three seconds and, and kind of looked in my eyes and like, that was it. Mm. It was just a conversation. So most doctors don't, but again, because my, my, my wheelhouse is to look at where is function breaking down and how do I restore function, I've got to look at everything to go, what's the, if I hit you up here, does, will that affect everything else down here? You know? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to just go boom, 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 and then go, okay, come back and see you three times. I really don't want to do that when I'm adjusting somebody. Yeah. I've done that, you know, early on in my career, but as a functional neurologist now, we want to see if we can hit the, hit the top part of the nervous system and have that take care of everything else. So yes. if you hit the apex of the, of the pyramid, then you sort of handle everything else below it. In your case, though, when you have somebody who has a disc problem, non-surgical decompression, I have found to be just miraculous for some people. Really, truly just people come off the table and go, wow, I've been to chiropractic, I've had physical therapy, I've done so many different things, I've had surgery. We just took care of somebody the last four months who had a 37-year-old yoga instructor, failed surgery, and left her with nerve damage, but she is better now. But it, it took a few months. It, Without that technology, there's not much I could do even with my hands, you know? And I think people have to really be careful is when you have a back injury and you go to an orthopedic surgeon, they do surgery. They're going to recommend surgery for you. And so what are your thoughts on that as, you know, doing surgery as a last resort before exhausting all the other uh, treatments options available out there? <laughs> that is my thought, right? Yeah. It, to me, it just seems like common sense. Why would you ever have anybody cut on you before you've exhausted all the possibilities. But I'll give you another personal example that humbled me. So about three years ago, I woke up at two o'clock in the morning and it felt like Chucky was in bed with me stabbing my shoulder blade. My pain on a scale of one to 10 was like a 12 to a 15. I just woke up like, oh my gosh. And my finger was lit up on one side, my finger was lit up on the other side. I took, tried to get one step out of the bed and as soon as my foot hit the floor, I got an electric shock up and down my whole body. I know what that is, that's damage to my spinal cord, that this is not good. And I had an MRI done and I had two enormous herniations up against my cord and my neck. And the radiologist actually called me back on the way out of the place and said, I'm looking at your film. Congratulations, Dr. James, you've got the real thing. And he said, if I were you, I would try to avoid surgery because I don't really get to see such great outcomes on this side looking at MRIs. And I had a laugh saying, you know who I am, right? I send you guys 20 cases a, a month for upright MRIs. And he kind of laughed. And But I did have a moment where I thought, now I see why people want surgery. Because in that moment of such excruciating pain, you just want relief, right? You just want, you want it, you need it to stop. Yeah. Um, but I was fortunate, so I literally drove back to my office, I got on my tables, and I did it twice a day for three weeks, and I was 85% pain-free in three weeks. Yeah. Yeah, Pretty the amazing. decompression is, is amazing, and I was utilizing that um, in your office, and can you talk a little bit about decompression and how, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, you know, injuries people have that are appropriate for using decompression and what decompression is exactly? Yeah, so, so spinal decompression is a way for us to reduce the pressure in the disc. So we have discs in our spine from C2, the second vertebra in our neck, 
all the way down to our sacrum. And its job is, is several fold. Number one is to give us flexibility. One is to act as a cushion, to act as a shock absorber and give us mobility. So we have a blood supply to our disc until we're around 14 years of age. And then that whole blood supply disappears. And yet the disc is supposed to be 85 to 87% water. And that's important because our whole spine pivots over that. And that water content gives us its flexibility. So the only way that that disc can stay flexible and stay full of water and work the way that it's supposed to is through osmosis and imbibition. In other words, the great architect in the sky, I believe, put us together thinking that as we bend and move through our daily activities of living, that what would happen would be that we would squeeze out acidic waste product and bring water back in. But we have, all of us have more sedentary lives than we've ever had. We're sitting at computers all day like this, right? And, and even if not, we've had multiple traumas going through life, whether it's car accidents, bike falls, et cetera. And now the spine doesn't move as well. And let's say you're sitting in a chair and certain muscles get shortened that shouldn't be shortened. And now we get abnormal movement patterns. And now, guess what? We're not creating that osmosis and inhibition. The disc begins to break down and dry out. When it breaks down and dries out, it can't distribute weight and force the way that it's supposed to. And so now we end up with compensations and or a disc herniation or a disc bulge. The beauty of non-surgical spinal decompression is that it gets to that source. In other words, we can create a negative pressure into the disc so it's reducing pressure in the disc, drawing new water and nutrients back into the disc, not regenerating disc tissue, but essentially bringing the water back in that, that makes it more soft and pliable. Think of a dried out riverbed having water run through it. It gets silty again, right? So it's great for people who have degenerative disc disease, who have disc bulges, disc herniations, who have um, sciatica, pinched nerves, um, spinal stenosis. All of those things are, are really amenable to non-surgical decompression. But that's one component of, of it. So the, the really critical component is, yes, if you have a disc problem, we've got to handle the disc problem. But this is also where surgeries, surgeons fail, right? You don't want to just do the decompression. What you want to do is you want to recalibrate and reset the way that person's muscles are firing. There is a sequence that your muscles should fire in order for you to resist gravity properly and be able to move and have stability. And probably 99% of the time, that's missing for people. So we have to do things in a certain order. We want to reduce the pain so your body isn't getting abnormal pain signals, which would then cause it to basically fire muscles aberrantly to support you. So we want to get rid of that. But then we want to start putting you on the path to teaching you how to do specific exercises to train your body to fire muscles in a specific pattern so that you don't re-injure yourself. Mm. And then if people are recalcitrant or, 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 or what's the word I'm looking for? If people are uh, refractive to care, they're not responding even to that, then usually that means I've got to do some brain-based work with them. Okay. Usually it means that basically brains aren't firing right. They're not getting the right information. They're not, the output isn't right. And there are some simple things that we can often do that, that stabilizes people and gets them out of pain. What does that look like, the brain retraining? So it depends for everybody. So it's as creative as you want to be. Often it's eye movement stuff for me is a simple thing to do for people, right? So um, if you think of it, if you were to look at me and don't take your eyes off of me, I know it's hard not to, and turn your head to the right. So turn your head to the right now. Okay. I know so you did this to me on our first console. Like, what the right. hell is he doing? <laughs> right. So you have to say, if your eyes, you have to understand there's a relationship between our eyes and our spine. And there's an integration in our brainstem between our brain and our cerebellum and our brainstem to make all these things work well. You know, walking is a, a series of coordinated falls. So walking is an incredibly difficult neurological task to accomplish. And it requires spinal stability and what we call shunt stability. And that requires your brain to be working right. So there are things that we can do above the, the brain to get your brain, uh, sorry, above the brain, above the spine to get your brain working well, or do things like adjusting you in specific patterns to get certain areas of the brain to fire up, or give you certain exercises to do that will help your brain fire up and work more, better for you, that will also give you stability to your neck and to your back. So it's like that. 
So, so you use upright MRIs as part of your evaluation. And a lot of people, like I came in, I had an MRI where I was just laying down. And so what is, and that's the kind of MRIs most people are getting when they're getting an evaluation with their physician to figure out right. what's wrong. So what is the problem with the MRIs where you're lying down and the difference between that and an upright MRI? So there's not a problem. I mean, if you have a liver problem, it's not a problem to do a lying down versus seated. Yeah. Um, here's what we found. UCLA did a study a few years ago, and they said that they missed between 30 and 40% of disc herniations and spinal instabilities when they did the MRI with a person lying down versus seated. And guess what UCLA still does? MRIs lying down. Their own research says, hey, we're missing 30 to 40% of the problems we see in the spine, yet they still haven't converted to it. So the technology is fairly expensive, but it's been around for about 10 years. I like it because the job of our spine and our discs is to help us resist our body weight and gravity. So I don't want to see, and most people have problems when they're seated or standing. There are some people who say, God, I can't lie down on my back, it kills me. But for the most part, most people are having problems in gravity. In addition, when we have you in a seated position, in a weight-bearing position, we can bend your spine forward and we can bend it back. So that gives us more information. We can see if there's an instability. In other words, there's a vertebra slip forward or backward. That would create a problem maybe for us to rehabilitate you, or, or not a problem, but it would give us a window into how we would have to rehabilitate you. A herniation can get a lot worse or better in one position over another. That's also beneficial for us. So when we put you on our decompression tables, and we have some really cool new technology with decompression. I mean, a lot of it didn't really move along into the last few years. It was just sort of a, a static pole, if you will, lying down the table. But now we can laterally flex the table, we can bend the table, the table itself moves, we're flexing your spine, so we can target a disc more effectively. We can find out where a person has the most relief and, and, and move the table in that kind of a direction. So uh, having an upright MRI gives us a lot more clinical information, and when we can match that, and it matches to our thorough neurological evaluation, now we know more specifically how we have to address the patient. And so when you're doing decompression, how many sessions do people typically need, and it, what's the difference between the decompression machine that you're using compared to other ones? Because I've been to some chiropractors, they have some ancient decompression machines. I went to one guy that his decompression machine was from the 90s, and he was actually still trying to like get people to do this. <laughs> he's, get, he's getting his money's worth, wasn't he? He's getting his money's machine. worth. So <laughs> I thought I ran out of that office as fast as I could. So what's the, you have a, obviously a very uh, newer high-tech decompression machine. What are the benefits of the one that you use compared to others? So we had three of the, so let's actually give you a little historical history on this. So back in 1989, the very first decompression table was created by a Dr. Dyer, who was the Minister of Health in Ontario, Canada. And he had a herniated disc, and, he, and the research showed, hey, traction really didn't work. And he theorized it was a consequence of when you pull, basically the muscles react and they start to spasm, and that's why you can't do anything to the disc. Um, so he thought, well, if I could bypass that mechanism, I might be able to fix a disc. And so he created the first table. It was called the VAX-D. That's the one that was at the chiropractor's office. <laughs> that's the first one. The first one. <laughs> and, funny, that's funny. So you, you would lie on your stomach and hold on like this for dear life as it pulled you. So... He fixed himself, and actually, it was a really good table. It helped a lot of people. There were a couple of problems with it. Number one is he created a lot of shoulder problems and neck problems because people couldn't hold on, right, or holding on caused problems. A lot of people who were in tons of pain can't lie on their stomach. Hmm. So that's another issue. And then it was dependent upon, hey, how strong are you feeling that day where you could actually hold on? Because if you let go, then the table's pulling and you're getting no decompression. So then a whole bunch of engineers looked at this, and a guy named Norman Shealy, who's considered the father of pain medicine, came up with his own version of it with his engineers called the DRS system. And then there was, oh my gosh, there's, there's three or four big manufacturers. 
There's a company called Axiom that came out with the DRX 9000. And that was big for a while. I had three of those tables. I think I was the first person to bring it into LA. Um, and we had three of those tables for many years, and they were good. Here's the limitations. You, it's a linear pull. You're putting a harness around your, your, your torso, harness around your belt, your, your pelvis, and then it would be attached to a tower where we would raise and lower the angle to target a disc. So we got really good results with it, but there were people who I couldn't get good results with it, people who needed it to be in a different position. Oh, you're, you're limited to, you're on your back, and it's being pulled like that. In addition, they had presets in there, like, oh, we want to target L5, you push the button. Well, that's always sounded absurd to me. Like, my L5 disc is going to be different for somebody who's 5'8", who maybe has a big belly and has got a, extended, a hyperextended back, versus somebody who's 6'2 and slender. So we had to play with that a lot. Also, it didn't give you a lot of variability of how long you wanted to pull somebody, how long you wanted them to rest, what was the speed that you bring them up. So in that fashion, it was limited. But we had three tables and treated an awful lot of people very successfully with that. In the last few years, newer technologies come around where they're, they're just more sophisticated. So instead of a belt pulling you, the table, it's, you're literally strapped to the table and we flex the table. So now we're bending your spine, either extending it or flexing it, and that's much more specific to targeting a disc for a person. We can also laterally bend and we can rotate it. Mm. So there are ways in which, for, for instance, somebody comes in that pain shooting down their leg. If I can get them in a position in the exam where I can decrease that pain in their leg, that's the position I want to put them on the table. So, and there have been at least a half a dozen people who I put on that table now face down where I've gotten better results than I did face up. So now, so that's the, the mechanical part. The sophistication of the computer is also advanced light years because now I can determine how fast do I want to bring up that ramp speed. So let's say we start at zero and I want to pull you at 40 pounds, Wendy. Well, do I want to get that to 40 pounds in 30 seconds or do I want it to take 90 seconds to get there? How long do I want to hold it? How long do I want to rest? All of those things are, we treat different types of disc conditions differently. So somebody who comes in with a, a herniation from last week is going to get very, treat, different, very treated in a different protocol than somebody, for instance, who has just degenerative disc disease where we want to pump that disc. Mm-hmm. So the newer de- decompression allows us to be more specific, if you will, with people. Um, and we just love it. And at, when I made the transition, I was a little nervous. You know, you get used to what you get used to. And I knew this was the right move, but I was still a little bit nervous about it, nervous how the patients are going to feel. 201, every single patient who went from, through the transition said, love this table so much more. It's more comfortable. It feels better. I'm getting better relief. All of that. Yeah, I had the same experience. I was going to another chiropractor before you and using a table, and they were using way too much uh, pounds. They were doing 100 pounds of pressure on me, and, and I'd have a couple times where it kind of pulled my muscles, and I'd have more back pain afterwards, and I just intuitively knew that it wasn't right. And then I came to you, and the tables are much more sophisticated and computerized and uh, just a whole other ballpark. And so yeah, I ended yeah. up getting relief from that. So thank you uh, for that. Yeah, my- pleasure. We love helping. You know, yeah. the, the funny thing is, is there are people who come in, they're like, oh, pull me more. I want to be pulled more. And we know from the literature and the research that more is not better with that, that there's a sweet spot where you actually decompress the disc better and more is not better. But, you know, sometimes you just got to give people what they want. So especially usually the bullheaded, hardheaded plumber guys, you know, that go, oh, you know, they're big, they're overweight, they're strong. Pull me more. I want to be pulled at 150 pounds. Yeah. You won't walk <laughs> when you get off the table. I don't care. Yeah. Okay? So here, sign this release and I'll make you not walk for a day and then you'll yeah. know that I am doing. Yeah, that's what I was having. I was uh, getting to the point where I get off the table and I, I couldn't walk and I had to lay down for a few minutes first. And, you know, it just was very, it just felt very unstabilizing, you know. So this is a, it's a good point to make. And uh, it's, it's a funny thing to talk about. You know, people talk about stretching making you looser. It, stretching does not make us looser. Stretching increases muscle tone. 
So everybody who's listening to this right now, you can do it to yourself. You could like stretch out your arm. Well, it's hard to do it yourself, but let's say you just feel the tone of your, your arm here and then you stretch the muscle. You'll feel that that muscle actually got tighter. Mm-hmm. So why do we think that we're actually stretching out a muscle? We're not. We're doing yoga. You're actually increasing tone. When you hold something long enough, you can actually start to maybe break up the adhesions in the white tissue and the connective tissue and the tendons and the fascia. But the muscle itself is not getting lengthened. So when you're pulling like that, if you're not doing and cycling properly, you're going to cause more muscle contraction. Mm. Uh, You know, when I was a really young man, when I was 17 years old, I went to my first chiropractor and used to hang me upside down on these invertebrate things. And for the first 15 seconds, it was heaven. Even at 17, it was just, oh, out of gravity, it feels so good. I spasmed every single time I came off of that thing. Yeah. Every time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know until I studied neurology, went, oh, that's the mechanism. Your muscle is actually tightening. It doesn't like being like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had a machine like that too. I was a, a machine you kind of sit on and then you, you know, spin over and you hang upside down and it stretches your back or you can do sit-ups on it. And same thing, you go into a spasm where it starts tightening up. Right. This is the beauty of decompression where the, the computer has a tensometer on it. So it's monitoring as it's pulling you, it doesn't completely let go, but if it starts to feel like your body's resisting, it starts to back off. Mm-hmm. So your body's alarm system, the emergent, the warning system says, oh, I gotta protect the joint, it starts to relax and realize there's no threat there. And then the cycling pattern starts to basically cause water to get sucked back into the disc. So we've seen this a lot, and it's the only thing I've ever seen in 30 years in practice where you can you do a post-MRI and you see more water back in the disc. That's a pretty cool thing to do. There's no surgeon that's gonna do that. There's no chiropractic treatment that's gonna do that. There's no acupuncture, there's, no physical, there's nothing I've ever seen do that. You also that's have to cool. actually drink water, right? You yes, have to you keep the, have the body water. and the disc hydrated. <laughs> that's why I'm you guzzling do. water the whole time we're talking. That's good, I see that. And you're drinking out of a glass bottle, good for you. I am, yeah, I am. And so, um, what kind of conditions do you typically have success with in your practice? So, all sorts of different stuff. I mean, somehow we've sort of fallen into this thing of, I tend to treat a lot of discs and a lot of spines. So people who have um, disc herniations, disc bulges, degenerative disc disease, sciatica, and, and whether these degenerative disc diseases in the neck or in the low back, very successful with that. Um, spinal stenosis, so let's talk about that for, for I don't know how, what the age range of your audience is, but a lot of folks when they get into their 70s are diagnosed with stenosis. And I love this because I say to patients, well, okay, what's causing the stenosis? And they look at me like I'm a three-headed horse or something. Like, what do you mean? The stenosis is causing the stenosis. And I said, well, no. Stenosis is a narrowing down of an opening. So when we talk about stenosis, it's, it's either a narrowing down of the opening where the spinal cord lives in the spinal canal or where the nerves exit, neuroforamal stenosis. There are lots of things that can cause that. So it can be a disc bulge. It can be a disc herniation. It can be degenerative disc disease. It can be a facet hypertrophy, a thickening of the facet joint. It can be a synovial cyst around the facet. There can be something called an epidural lipoma that lives inside there. It can be one vertebra slipping over the other. It can be a combination of all of those things. It can be bone spurs. Normally, what we see is, and frequently, it's a combination of things that are soft tissue related, not bone related. And that can be really, really nicely dealt with with spinal disease, doing probably more investigative tests to figure out what's going on with the person, um, if it's warranted. Um, I have a naturopath in the office, so he does um, bioenergetic medicine, I suppose is what you'd call it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know too much. He, he lives in his own sort of world and universe, and there's only so much I can know, and I start to dip into it, and it's like it's going down a wormhole that I, I can barely <laughs> handle the neurology wormhole. Yeah, that's uh, Rex Wilson, right? It is. That's yeah. Rex Wilson, Yes. Um, I've got a, a terrific uh, chiropractor in the office who it really helps a lot of athletes, a CrossFit trainer, and I've taught him a lot of neurology. So he's really adept at handling people with any kind of physical issue. Uh, we do ozone therapy in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have quite a few different things going on there and always evolving and changing. And um, I'm also looking at 
uh, we spoke before getting on the call here today about having an office on the East Coast. Um, so my primary office is in Los Angeles, but I'm looking at having an office on the East Coast in North Carolina and in Durham, Chapel Hill, Raleigh area. So that's soon coming. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so, you know, for the most part, I, I my role in the practice mostly was doing triage. Like I would evaluate somebody, have them come in and go, okay, what's really going on here? What components of your health are, first of all, what does the person want? Right? What's their what's their primary goal? What do they need? And then based upon that, what I'm seeing in the eval and maybe what their blood work I'll determine, well, this is somebody who could do some decompression. This is somebody who I should refer to Rex. This is somebody who my nutritionist should see or I should work with. This is somebody who needs ozone therapy to handle a chronic infection or something. So that's kind of how, how I, I saw myself as sort of the triage doc in the office, where this is somebody who's got a brain-based problem that I clearly need to work with and I can fix that and, and help them. So Is that why you saw me primarily? <laughs> because of your brain damage? Exactly. <laughs> no, that wasn't actually. You came in because you had a disc problem. And, and, a and a minor shoulder thing that apparently I was able to handle yeah. this one. <laughs> just checking. Just checking. <laughs> so I have a question I like to ask all of my guests. Yeah. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Just to put you on the hot seat. Um, I, I don't think it's one. I think it's potentially two. I think, um, I think we are unbelievably inundated with chemicals that are just completely unnecessary in our environment. I think glyphosate is probably going to be one of the greater evils that we'll deal with. Um, it's spread everywhere, and I think it's causing a lot of problems, and it may be at the heart of why there's so much gluten sensitivity and, and gluten intolerance. Um, so chemicals, and whether that's in the vaccines that everybody's getting inoculated with and in our environment, I think we're just inundated with chemical toxicity at a level that we have never dealt with before. And then on top of that, the level of communication and the level of things that are coming at us has created a stress level for everybody that I know, myself included, that we haven't had to deal with in the past. Mm -hmm. you know, we're in a brave new world of so much communication coming at us and so many things we feel like we need to learn and, and, and technology keeping us up 20 hours a day and we're not sleeping enough. Mm -hmm. And I think we're becoming very sympathetic dominant as, as, as a world society, which means we're on edge like this and always feeling like we got, so I, I think those are the pressing concerns and um, which is why I try to meditate for a half an hour to an hour every day. Because mm -hmm. without that, I feel like a crazy person. How do you have frankly. time to do that? <laughs> Funny you ask that. I was in a yoga class in a gym of all places in LA. I don't normally go to like a, a gym, a yoga class in a gym, but the teacher was fantastic. And she started the class off with like a five minute meditation. And then she said, my meditation teacher says that um, everybody should meditate for an hour every day. And she paused. And there was giggles in the room, of course, right? Like people thinking, <laughs> like, yeah, I have an hour. And, and then she said, and he also said that if you're really busy, you should be meditating four hours a day. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's hard. You, we make choices, you know, and people find that when they do meditate, that they're much more productive and functional the rest of that. They're whatever, 10 or, 12, you know, my, I have a 12 hour day, but they're much more productive over that day. You know, they get more Agreed. work. They get more work done. They're more productive. Agreed. So it's a it's a discipline to be sure. Right. I mean, you have to look at where it fits in your life. There are days where I feel like I'm, I'm better. Like I like to wake up at 430 in the morning to get an hour of meditation in. Um, I'll interrupt my sleep to do it. There are days where I stop in the middle of the day and I meditate for a half an hour. And there are days where it happens. I'm actually teaching, uh, so blow me away, I have an eight-year-old daughter and normally she can't sit still for a minute. I just started meditating with her before she goes to sleep. The other day she meditated for 35 minutes with me. Mm. Blew me away. I had an eight-year-old. I mean, oh, it's going to be so good for her to have that as part, what that yeah. does to her nervous system and all of us. So I think it's just a matter of the discipline of saying, this is going to be more important to me than anything that occurs in the course of my day. That yeah. my connection to myself my connection to peace and calming myself down, my connection to that inner spirit and God is more important than making money 
working, cooking, feeding, shopping, whatever craziness we get caught up in. It just has to be that important. I'm lucky that um, I was introduced to meditation 30 years ago and got to spend some time in India. And the time I spent in an ashram in India, I was meditating four to five hours a day. Hmm. And that's life-changing. You know, you walk out of that, you don't really realize at the moment, but when I got back out into the world, not much affected me, you know? Not mm-hmm. from a, not from a, like, father move, like, a, like, discompassionate, but more like a, it was just fascinating to watch my mind and not be caught up in all the drama. And unfortunately, you know, then I fell out of that practice and the savings account that I had built up for meditating four or five hours a day kind of dwindled. But if you do that practice regularly, it does help you make different choices, you know, we all know from doing that, right? So yeah, I'm sure moving to LA really helped uh, calm you down. <laughs> yes. It, 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 LA is such a deceiving city, isn't it? You know, people yeah. think, oh, it's so laid back and casual. I, I never found it that way. It's casual because of the way people dress. But, it, you know, it's a dog eat dog city. People, it's a very high stress city. Here in yeah. Durham, it's a whole different thing. You yeah, know, people can't even go hi. They don't look at you like they want something from you. They're actually just saying hi. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I have the same experience in Texas when I go back and I'm like, why is this person saying hi to me? <laughs> you know, I, I but it, it's not, you know, not so literally, but it's just kind of funny. It's just very different, you know. Right. Why is he, what's he looking at? You know, that's the thing you get in LA. What are you looking at? You know, it's mm. very edgy. Yeah. Um, and that, so that speaks to, again, what the question you asked me about, which is like, what are our most pressing concerns? Is that level of stress isn't good for us. We're not designed for, chronic stress. There's a, a book I'm reading right now. It's, it's been around for a long time called uh, Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Yeah. I recommend everybody read it. Have you read it? No, I, I haven't. I've heard of it. So it's, it's, it's about that very subject of just the amount of stress, the chronic stress creates an inflammatory process and, and starts to destroy our cardiovascular system and our endocrine system and, and our nervous system and starts to break us down. None of us can survive. It's like, oh my God, forget Santa Monica. <laughs> West LA. Those, those, that mile marker makes a difference. No, yeah. we're actually in West LA, right? Just uh, at the four or five and the ten, right? Okay, great. Area. Yeah, okay, great. Um, but you're, it's technically Santa Monica, but east, east, east Santa Monica, right? No, it's actually no. Not... It's actually West LA. No, I think Santa Monica <laughs> ends like like a like a half a mile west of us. Okay, you would think I would know that because I lived in Santa Monica a long time. So anything west of four or five, it's all Santa Monica to me. I see. Yeah. I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And everyone, if you want to learn more about me, you can go to live2110.com. You can learn more about my healing and detox program, mineralpower.com. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful, I hope you guys had a wonderful new year and a wonderful holiday. I know that I did. I spent some time with my daughter and uh, took uh, about 10 days off of work, which was great, or off of seeing clients. I was still working a little bit, um, but I hope you guys had a wonderful vacation. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.